You're listening to the Creekside Church Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Terry Riley, which is from our sermon series, The Beatitudes, Jesus' Talk on the Hill. For more information, please visit our website at www.creekside.org. Good morning, everybody. Uh, dismiss the uh, students to remix, those who will be attending that today, invite you to go. And uh, I think, uh, hope some of you brought some quarters that you can put in the jars back there. And uh, let me see what else, I think there's one more thing. Oh, baptism after service. Uh, you actually be in person in the conference room if you've never been baptized. We encourage you to go and find out more about that if you would. Hi. How's everybody doing? Are you smiling at me? (laughs) I can't tell. You know, they say you can tell a good smile because the eyes kind of wince. So I hope you're smiling at me today. Uh, I'm going to do the teaching is going to be a little bit more didactic and uh, because it really builds on the next probably five or six teachings that we're going to do. Here's a question for you. Think about this. And you can drop, well, uh, maybe not. Um, who, who is the most righteous person, the most godly person that you can think of that you would say they are either in heaven or they are going to heaven? Think of somebody and uh, raise your hand. I want to hear who you come up with. Okay? Yes. Jeff Reed, okay? Jeffrey, pastor, used to be the pastor. Hillcrest? Hillside. Hillside, excuse me. Hillside Covenant Church. Okay? A pastor. Yes? My dad, he's there now. Your father, and he's there now. Yes, yes. Anybody else? Yes. Her son, Christian. Wow, okay, I know Christian. He is a great, great young guy. Absolutely good. Anybody else? Yeah. Normal Lee, yeah, Normal Lee Butler, yeah, yeah, yeah. Colleen Rogers, yes, absolutely. Yeah, you're going back in the, in the Creekside uh, historical people. That's awesome. Anybody else? Yeah. I would say Chuck Smith is there. Yes, yes, I love Chuck Smith. Another pastor uh, started to really, was, was shaping the Jesus movement, yes. Who? Mike O'Reilly. Okay. Yes. Good, good. I think it's the same one I know. One more. Yes. Can't forget Brian. Who? Brian Blomquist. Brian Blomquist recently passed. Amen. Good, good brother. Okay. That's important because I want you to think about why would you say that they would go? What is it about their life that would have said that's who you thought of right off the top of your head? Uh, uh, to turn to Matthew chapter 5, we're going to pick it up today in <clears throat> verse 17. I, I spoke from there a couple of weeks ago and I really talked about the word because I want to just remind us of the power, the veracity, and the long term, the ongoing, the eternal word that Jesus is referring to in this passage of scripture that we're going to work, uh, work through today. Never forget that God's word is eternal. He said the grass withers the Flower fades, but God's word stands forever. 
Heaven's run by it. It's settled. Uh, The psalmist said in 119 that God's word is settled in heaven. It's going to be eternal. Now Jesus, he has just talked about the Beatitudes in the first 10 verses. And then he gets to the next five, six verses. And he reminds us, he says, this is who you are. It's not what you do. It's who you are. You are salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. Wherever you go, that's what you, that's who you are. And the results of that, well, you'll begin to influence people. But now Jesus begins to come to this next section and he's going to unpack it. And he's going to really begin to look at the ethics of the kingdom that were totally, truly counterculture in that day. And guess what? They're counterculture to our day today. And so today's teaching is really somewhat of an introduction that moves us into those things because Jesus is going to unpack six illustrations from the law of God that the the Pharisees and the scribes would teach. And it really is going to point us to the heart and the righteousness of God and, and how it raises the ante on the conventional wisdom And the word on the street in Jesus's day and how it began to kind of how he's changing their thinking about what the kingdom of God is about. Because when Jesus is, uh, as Matthew writes, he really, his focus is to the Gentiles, excuse me, to the Jews. And as he focuses on the Jews, he's going to talk about the thing that Jesus really emphasized, which was the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God, every kingdom needs a king. And Jesus is saying, I am coming to you in all my regality, my royalty to be the king of your lives. And he's going to make these statements in these six passages that we're going to be coming to. He's going to say, you have heard it said, but I say to you. And this is going to be an important phraseology that we'll talk about uh, toward the end. He isn't adjusting the teaching, but he's fulfilling the teaching. He has come, Jesus said, to fill it up, to fill it. There's a word, pleroma. Uh, One of the uh, parts of that word that is used there, he comes to fill it up and to fulfill it. He's completing what's already present. And he's doing a little bit of corrective work and corrective measures as well. Uh, First thing I want you to see is Jesus's radical kingdom call. And we see this throughout Matthew 5 through 7. He's going to say, as I noted, trust the word. In verse 16, he talks, he comes and he says, I am the fulfillment that was spoken of by the law and the prophets. Remember, we've talked, I've noted this a number of times in our time together uh, about the hermeneutical principles of scripture. Hermeneutics is this class that you take uh, in the Preacher Factory Bible College Seminary, and it, it, it gives you rules of interpretation so that even though nobody agrees on everything, trust me, there are some general rules of interpretation that we're to follow. One of the key principles is to understand that everything of the Old Testament points to Jesus in the New Testament. And so that's what Jesus is saying here. He says, I've come, I'm fulfilling that. And sometimes we forget that Jesus' kingdom, the kingdom of God, deals with matters of the hearts, who we're becoming, not just what we're doing. It's so easy to focus on the doing, but Jesus says, and you'll see it in a few places here in in, uh, Matthew chapter 5, that he says, I don't want you to enter into a religion. 
I don't want you to enter into rules and regulations. I want you to enter in to a relationship with the living God that embraces not only your conduct and your behavior, but probably more importantly is your heart because out of the inward heart of our life, Jesus said in Matthew 7, flow the issues of life, flow the things that we do. But we're gonna read about some people today and in the coming weeks. They're called the Pharisees and the scribes and they were the religious rulers of the day. They were the people, they're the people that everybody looked up to. They were kind of like, well, they would have been somewhat the pastors of the day. And they kind of ushered in this whole process of kind of a religious relationship to God. And a lot of people today, maybe there's some of you here today that, you know, you kind of have this religious relationship with God where it's more of a type of a system where you want to check off the box. I do this, I go to church, I do this, I throw some money in the offering, I do this, I pray once in a while, like when I'm really in deep weeds, and I don't do this like those people do, I don't do those things like those people do, and you begin to think, I'm pretty good. Uh... God's kingdom doesn't work that way. And we're going to read, I'm going to kind of just walk you through this passage. So if you would just kind of follow along as we go. Because Jesus is saying the intent for his kingdom is always about heart-driven obedience, which will also ultimately affect not just your thinking, but your heart and your walk with him. And Jesus, he says in this passage, he comes to fulfill the law in verses 17 and 18. He says, don't assume that I come to destroy the law or the prophets. I do not come to destroy, but to fulfill. There's that word again, fulfill, to fill up or to literally fulfill. I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of the letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. He's saying bank on it. What the word says is going to happen or has already happened. There's some 330 prophecies concerning Jesus Christ, concerning uh, in the law and the prophets, concerning his first coming and then his second coming. They foretold the coming of the kingdom of God. And probably to date, over 200 of those have been fulfilled. And the remainder of those 330, 340 verses will be fulfilled in the second coming when Jesus returns for his church. Jesus is reminding them and us, bank on it, trust in it. It's going to happen. Now, a lot of times as Jesus is, Jesus is really just kind of starting his ministry, his preaching and teaching ministry. Many Jews that here in, in, in Matthew chapter five, and, and many of the Jews believed on the basis of how Jesus was that, uh, that when, when the Messiah come, Jeremiah 31, 31 says, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. It's a proclamation. That is a prophetic word that Jesus lived out in his first coming. 
But a lot of the Jews believed that Jesus would annul the old covenant. He would start a new kind of moral basis, a new way of living. And part of that was because of the thinking, the conventional wisdom, what they heard on the street. These people were so disheartened. They were so sick. They were so burdened down with the hypocritical legalism. These man-made rules that were added to everything by the scribes and the Pharisees as ways to please God. They just hoped that this Messiah would come and bring the dawning of a new day. Bring a new day of freedom from the burdensome, mechanical, and trivial, and meaningless demands of the traditions and the systems that these scribes and Pharisees had begun to espouse to them. Now hear me. Jesus is committed to this book the revelation of God because everything in it ultimately speaks of him and points to him. And as we read, he didn't come to destroy. He didn't come, literally the word uh, to, means to abolish. The, the word destroy means to abolish or to overthrow it. He says, I'm not doing that. This is settled in heaven, but I am coming to fulfill them. Well, what do you mean? How did he fulfill them? Well, there's three kinds of laws that the Jewish people dealt with from God. There's the ceremonial law. These are the laws that related to the worship and expression and activity of God's people in terms of how they came to worship. This is the expression that most of us are familiar with today or meeting in a home or, or doing something like that. But they had different expressions of the way that they met with God. You see this throughout the book of Leviticus that God said, this is how you're to approach me in my holiness and my grandeur. The most obvious that all of us would be familiar with, or many of us would be familiar with, would be the uh, animal sacrifices. The animal sacrifices were never meant to remove sin from the people the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. They were never meant to do that or whenever they would come and give a sacrifice, they were simply meant to cover over until the Messiah came who not only would cleanse us from sin, but literally it says, the psalmist said that as far as the east is from the west, he would remove our sins from us. Oh, happy day. No guilt. I don't got to carry that stuff. Could you imagine in the Old Testament days, if they're, you know, they're bringing their animals to the temple to be sacrificed. I can just imagine Nat, he's got two bulls and, you know, and you go, wow, must have been a bad week for him, you know? <laughs> Sorry, Nat, but, uh, and then somebody else, they got a couple of turtle doves and they come in and, oh, wow, oh, they're holy. We don't have to, aren't you glad you don't have to come into church and say, well, here, what's he bringing in today to be sacrificed or what's she bringing in? See, Jesus was that ultimate sacrifice. As Christ followers, we no longer do those activities as expressions of our worship. We don't have to bring a sacrifice. But hear me, the same principles that are there that pointed to Jesus that have to do with the heart, God still wants us to enter into with a sense of reverence and holiness and purpose. They're still to be operative in our worship today. Uh, Hebrews 15, 13, 15 says this, that through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise and the fruit of our lips that openly, openly profess his name. Isn't that interesting? He says, I want you to bring a sacrifice of praise. 
I don't know about you, but praise doesn't always cost us a whole lot today, does it? I mean, we can praise our dog for fetching the paper. Good boy, Ooh, you're so good, you know? Our kids, you know, they, they make their bed one week out of, or, you know, one day out of the week. And I say, oh man, you're, you're awesome. And, you know, and we begin to praise for so many things. There's no sacrifice to that because ultimately a lot of those things can kind of benefit us. But there's times when there is this sacrifice of worship and praise that can be a little bit costly. Do you praise God all the time? Do you really praise God and give thanks to him even when there's a negative health issue? Maybe you got a wayward child, a financial downturn. I'm not saying we praise God for those things. First Thessalonians 5.18 says that we praise God, we give thanks in the midst of everything, which is really another expression of praise. Because that really takes a sacrifice to still acknowledge God that he's there, that he loves you, that he's walking with you in the midst of the difficult. It was years ago, Greg King, just a wonderful man, part of our church and church council. He had a serious, serious boating accident and I went to see him in the hospital. I mean, it was just a serious accident and, and, I, and I sat there and I just, I, I talked to him and he was just telling me how he would get up in the morning and he'd go to an area in his room where he could sit and he could see the sunrise coming up because he could barely walk. And he said, this is, this is my greatest hope. I see the sun coming up and I just get to be there and sit with Jesus. And I thought, wow, whoa, whoa. That was a sacrifice of praise. He wasn't shaking his hand at God. Why me? How come me? But he just simply said, I, I get to go there. And I get to see God's creative handiwork come up and I get to, I get to praise him. That can be a worship, a sacrifice of praise. Well, there was the ceremonial law that Jesus fulfilled. There's the judicial law, and this applied to the daily living for Israel as God's unique nation. You can see a lot of examples of this in the book of Deuteronomy. The culture back then was so different than our culture and our societal mores. It was so different that those things just wouldn't fit today. And God had purpose in those. Jesus comes to fulfill them. You get the moral law. These are, the focus on this is oftentimes the Ten Commandments or the direct commands from God for all mankind. And sometimes people will think, oh, these are, they're, they're, we don't have to live under the law anymore. That's not true. This is the moral law that was for all humanity and mankind. These will be standing until the day you die or Jesus comes for us. These are the things like honor God only. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not bear false witness. And we're going to be talking about some of these things in the next few weeks. Because this is what Jesus is addressing here in chapter 5. He's resetting his teaching on the moral law. 
See, the law required death, animal sacrifices, so that come into the ceremonial law. There had to be a sacrifice when people sinned and, and disobeyed. But hear me, Jesus came to fulfill that. So that no longer do we have to die, die for our disobedience or for our sin, uh, but Jesus died for it. That's why we celebrate Good Friday and then Easter. That's where God came. He sent his only begotten son, Jesus, to live, to die, and to resurrect for us. He came to fulfill what prophets like Isaiah said in Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. But God laid upon him, Jesus, the iniquity of all of us. Think about that. Everything you've ever done. Anything that would ever be against God. When Jesus was on the cross, it was laid on him. For you, for me. Romans 10, 4, Paul said this. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The law ended... That, that, that law ended for us that we had to live under because now we can have the righteousness of Christ. We're no longer going to die for our sin and disobedience or have to give an offering or sacrifice for it. Jesus became that for you and I. And because Jesus has brought us into this new relationship with God, not a religion, not a do-good time, although doing good becomes a byproduct of it, uh, but it's never the pathway to that. He says, I'm going to give you a relationship. And it basically involves your faith in embracing Jesus Christ on the basis of what he has done for you to produce and promote righteousness and right standing before God. Hebrews says it this way, that Jesus has brought us into a new and living way. It's not religion, but it's life-giving and it's living. Paul reminds us in Titus 3, 5, that God saved us not by works of righteousness that you and I have done, but according to his mercy through his righteousness. When his righteousness was imputed toward us, it reminds us that he fulfilled the law in dying for us. But, but here's the thing. Jesus comes now, and as he begins to talk to these people and he's speaking to us here in the 2021, he kind of raises the standard. You remember one day Jesus, they're trying to trip him up. Everybody was kind of trying to trap Jesus in his words and, you know, trip him up. And that's kind of the way religious people do things. But one day he was asked, what's the greatest commandment? Jesus, tell us what's the greatest commandment in the law. There's 613 things there we got to think about. You tell us, narrow it down, and only Jesus can do this. And this is what he says, to love God with all you are. And he said to the man, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. And the second is much like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. And get this, he says, all the law and the prophets depend on these two commands. Because if you really, really love people and you really, really love God, you're going to do pretty well. Jesus succinctly summarizes these massive laws into four verses. 
Two statements, love God, love people. <laughs> Only Jesus can do that, right? And when the law was first given, what was it? It was these statements from on high, written by the finger of God. Thou shalt not, thou shalt not. And then Jesus comes and he turns them, gives them kind of a positive spin. And he says, I've got good news for you. Thou shalt, thou shalt love God. Thou shalt love people. Thou shalt love your neighbor. You probably work with people. You might have relatives that see God as this big ogre out there who's on the heavenly veranda with his bony finger and he wants to point people out. He wants to trip people up. He wants to catch them in their darkness and their sin. And that's not what his purpose is. His purpose is to bring us to a relationship with Jesus, to shine the light of his word in his life and through the light of our lives so people can see the greatness and the grandeur, the glory, the goodness, and the love of God. He's not after people. He's pursuing people with his great love and the conviction. That's what the law was to do. So people would read it and they would go, oh my goodness, I'm falling short. I need help. Because there is sin. And Jesus came to die to atone, to take our place. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 talks about this gospel. And he says, the, the scripture is basically, it's the good news for all humanity. That we have a remedy for our sin, our failings. And if you begin to read and see the whole counsel of God, all of the Bible points to the good news of Jesus Christ. But everybody has to choose between the narrow way or the wide way and the hard way or the easy way, which is Jesus's way. But it's a call to come to him and his pursuing love. Now in this teaching, we're gonna see Jesus begins to pivot. And he says something that's absolutely breathtaking to these people, literally shocking. He says, for I tell you, your righteousness has to surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees, or you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, this is why I asked you to think of that one person that you know is there or is going because if Jesus would have been teaching and he would have said, think of that person and say, you have to surpass their righteousness. You've got to be better than them. Or you're going to be, you may not make the cut. You're thinking, oh my goodness. And that's what these people are thinking. They are shocked. Because they didn't see anybody else that would have been better or more righteous than these scribes and Pharisees. And a lot of it was because of this reason. Uh, these men put themselves on display to be seen. It was seen through the types of robes they wore. Jesus is going to mention them in, uh, uh, in the next chapter where it says that they would just piously stand on the corners of the streets and they'd lift their hands and they would pray these massive prayers. Why? So they could be seen and so they could be heard. The language that they used was spiritual and, 
everybody goes, oh, wow, I could never be like them. And they touted and they kind of promoted their tremendous depth of righteousness before people. But hear me, loved ones, Jesus, these are the people that Jesus took on, confronted, and castigated because they, they simply lived and moved to impress with their personal righteousness than to impact people with the life of God. And Jesus says, I'm going to address that now. Jesus challenged their knowledge of the law and what they put onto other people, they didn't even live themselves. So Jesus comes and he says, you have to be more righteous than these to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And these people are going, whoa. This would have seemed impossible. And it would have been. Because these guys were the, you know, the Billy Grahams, the Mother Teresas, the Jack Haffords, the Charles Stanley of that day. Fill in the blank with your name. And so they're thinking, what does he mean by this? Well, first of all, it was. It was impossible. That's why Jesus brings them back and he's gonna take us through these things to show us this life can't be lived on your own. You need a savior. And that's what the law of God pointed to. Even the scribes and Pharisees, they knew God's revealed law. The standards of his righteousness were impossible to keep. So you know what they did? They started inventing traditions that were easier to keep. So keep the Sabbath. Well, that's a heart thing. It's an important part of keeping the Sabbath. It's a time of rest. So they made all these rules. I mean, there's a bunch of them, but one of them was like if your mule or an animal fell in the ditch, you couldn't help it out because that would be working on the Sabbath. Oh, how holy am I? Look at me. My animal's in the ditch, but I'm holy. I'm not going to work today. I'm going to leave it there till tomorrow. I mean, you know, you get this checklist and they had all of these different traditions and it was so easy to go, see, I am holy. And, and hear me, loved ones. It's all about the external, what people see. It's about image management. It's about looking good. And God says, you know, I'm really not into that. I really want to know what your heart's doing. I want to know what your heart is like. As a matter of fact, Jesus just castigates. He goes after these guys throughout the Gospels. He says things like to them in, in Matthew 23, uh, verse 25. He says, Jesus says, woe to you, you hypocrites. I, you know, I, there's, there's a few things you just never want to be called, and one of them is a hypocrite. W would you agree with that? Yeah. He says, you clean the outside of the dish or the bowl, but inside you're full of robbery, self-indulgence. He says, you're really just a, basically a bunch of whitewashed tombs. You look so spiffy on the outside, but inside, man, there is death, decay, robbery, lust, everything. It's like this bowl. Trina loves white. So all our dishes are white. Pure, pretty, clean, pristine, white. But I asked her, I said, Henry, this morning, would you just go get me some mud? <laughs> and see, when you look at it like this, this isn't so pretty, is it? Arg. 
Jesus was saying to those scribes and those Pharisees, you know, you're telling these people all of these things. And you look so righteous and so holy. But this is what you really are. Yeah. This is who you are. And we're going to deal with it, he says. See, Jesus comes now to do a reset on these moral laws. Jesus took the most righteous people of his day and he told the followers that their righteousness years must exceed these people. What did those people see? All they saw was the outward. Jesus saw the heart. Now he's going to begin, uh, we'll start next week where he starts confronting their teaching and he illustrates what he meant by unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees. See, the disciples were simply common people and the people that Jesus usually spoke to aside from the scribes, the Pharisees and the Sadducees who would have been scholars and trained in the Hebrew language which the Old Testament was written in, the common people, the general people, the disciples, Acts 4, uh, 13 says that they were uneducated, unlearned. They weren't well-versed in the Hebrew language of the Old Testament. It was the scholars. So whatever they heard, whatever they knew, they had to trust as God's word. And so all of a sudden, they're living out all of these man-made things that people were adding to it. See, they were well-versed in the common language of the day, Aramaic and, and Greek. Uh, but they had to trust others for the law. Jesus gives six illustrations from this passage on, six illustrative teachings concerning the law. He shows how they were teaching it and how it was intended to be taught when God revealed it. That's why he says, you're going to see this phrase in each section. You have heard it said what he should be, what he's really saying is you've heard it said, you've heard it taught by these Pharisees and these scribes, but now I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you what God meant by it. It isn't just these chat boxes to check. This is about your heart. This is about what's going on inside. See, the Pharisees taught all of these laws as these physical things when God intended it for it to be physical, but also make sure that it's spiritual and that it would govern the attitudes of the heart and the attitudes of man, the inner person. Uh, but the Pharisees begin to teach it in a way that it could be fulfilled instead of fulfilling what its purpose was, which was always to point people to God who needed a savior because they couldn't live out the law. And it pointed them to the need of a savior and a God who would take care and cover their sins. So see, God is as concerned, loved ones, about our attitudes and our heart response as is the actions that spring from our physical responses. Our attitudes can negate what we're actually doing. Haven't we all seen where our kids, we give them a chore and they just stomp around and they just say, all right, why am I doing this? Why am I going to do this? You know, and they're throwing dishes around and, and they're just mad. And you, what do you say? You know what? It'd be better if you didn't do it, but you need to do it. That's really what Jesus is saying here. I'm concerned about your attitude. 
you've worked with people, they give an assignment at work, and you just know, they hate it. They, they let everybody know it, and the job is done haphazardly. People give to God. God's after my money. <laughs> you know, he's always picking my pocket. You know, here's two bucks, God. Don't spend it all in one place. Second Corinthians chapter nine says that God loves a cheerful giver. I don't know, I can't speak for God on this, but I do wonder sometimes if he'd say, you know what, I don't need your money, keep it. If you can't give with a sense of heart-driven, love-based obedience, I don't know. Some of us, we serve in the church and after a while, we just get a bad attitude. Oh, we're serving on the outside, but inside we're going, ah, I hate this person. Ah, they're a jerk. Ah, pastor's a bum, you know, and, and everybody's, you know, and, and, and God says, I don't want that kind of, I don't want you just to be physical with this. See, God is as concerned about the heart and our inward being loved ones as he is the outward. And this is seen throughout scripture. Isaiah 29, 13 says, and so the Lord says, these people, they are mine. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And their worship in me is nothing more than made rules learned by rote. It's where we can just come in, sit down and go, hum de dum de dum bless me if you can. Oh, I don't like that song. I'm not singing it. What's our hope? Well, Jesus always gives us hope. Now, first of all, you can't white knuckle it. People say, I'm going to live out the Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to be righteous. <laughs> really? Good luck. Because we're going to begin to see how Jesus dovetails our thinking and our heart with our actions in the coming weeks. There's this term called legalism that the scribes and Pharisees really ushered in and lived out. And you, it's where you slowly substitute rules and regulations of a relationship with Christ. If I do these certain things and activities and avoid others, then God's going to think well of me. He's going to love me. And by golly, he better bless me. It's so easy, loved ones, for legalism to seep in and to get where, but, but it puts us on this spiritual treadmill. Have I given enough? Have I prayed enough? Have I done enough Bible study? Have I served enough? Have I helped enough people? And pretty soon you're on this religious, do-good, legalistic treadmill. All of those things are good, but you want to do them in the right heart and the right spirit for the right reasons in the right way at the right time because it's spiritual and God is leading you into it. But if you're doing those things simply to get God on your side to curry favor and thinking you're going to make him uh, more loving of you, it isn't going to happen. Legalism seeps in and you get on that spiritual treadmill and you're trying to do everything right and perfect instead of letting the perfect one, Jesus, begin to perfect your life. And this will be a joy-sucking, life-draining way to live, trying to make it happen on your own. Remember Paul, Romans chapter seven. He says this, I'm trying, I'm trying, I'm trying. The things that I want to do, I don't do. And the things I do want to do, I don't do. 
You know why? Because you can't do it on your own. That's what the whole Bible is about. You need a savior. You need a power that is greater than yours. God's law can't make you righteous, but it shows you where you fall short and why you need Jesus. So Paul in Romans 7 is just going through this litany of things. If you read it, just go through and, and, and note all the personal pronouns, I, me, my. That's Paul's focus. Me, I can't, I can't. You're, you're right, Paul, you can't. And then all of a sudden, it's almost as if he gets converted in between chapter 7 and chapter 8. And he says, Romans 8, 1, therefore, I couldn't do it. I can't do it. I can't accomplish it on my own. Good thinking, Paul. Because then he says, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I don't have to sit there and beat myself up because I don't do what I want to do and I do what I don't want to do. What he says is, there's no condemnation. You come to Jesus. You come to Jesus. He's granted to you everything pertaining to life and godliness. Throw your list away and let the Bible be your guide. Let the law of God be your guide, not people around you. Because his is a lot higher, but it's a lot better because there's freedom in it when you walk and live in the guardrails of his incredible grace. What's the difference between Romans 7 and Romans 8? Romans 7 focuses on what Paul tried to do and couldn't do and did do, but he didn't want to do. You move to Romans chapter 8, and the word, the key word in Romans chapter 8 is the spirit. And Paul begins to focus. You'll read the word spirit, spirit, spirit. It's the spirit of God at work in me. It's the spirit of God that reveals to me, speaks through me, prays through me. Uh, strengthens me and empowers me and will never allow me to be separated from the love of God. When you come, that's what you get. You get the spirit of God at work in you. Never forget, loved ones, this is what Jesus is saying. It's all about him. Galatians 3, 24 and 29. Therefore, the law was our tutor, our schoolmaster, our teacher, to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we're no longer under the tutor, the schoolmaster. We are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. And it's the Romans 8 where we begin because the spirit indwells in us. He begins to lead us and he begins to teach us. The purpose of the law was just to simply show us, to school us and to let us know how we need Jesus. Religion is about doing and trying. A lot of us, maybe even in this room, you might think that the scales of justice will weigh out in the end. I'm better than I am. I'm, 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 there's more good in me than there is bad. And it doesn't work that way. Jesus is the standard. Romans says there's none who is righteous. No, not one. Maybe some of you have never really put your faith in Jesus Christ. You're religious. You're good. do a lot of nice things, but that isn't the standard. The standard is Jesus Christ. And that's why he came and invites us into this relationship with him. The one who demands perfect righteousness, but he gives it and it imputes, gives to, puts on us 
his perfect righteousness and right standing before God. A person asked Jesus in Matthew 19, 25, man, how can anyone be saved? And this is what Jesus said. With man, it is impossible. With God, all things are possible. He's the one that does it. And he doesn't want us, hear me loved ones, he doesn't want us living religious lives. He wants us to live relationally based lives with him. We do things to please him, but not to get him on our side. That's the God we serve. Would you stand with me? Father, we come and we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you that you've declared that not one iota, not one, not one part of it will fade away. It will all come to pass. A lot of it's come to pass in your first coming, and then there's going to be a second coming. That those of us who walk with you and know you in relationship, we anticipate with great joy. And Lord, I pray, I ask, uh, if, if you're here today or you're online and you've never stepped into a relationship with Jesus, you've kind of built your life around the religion and the things that you do, and you hope in the end that's going to balance out the heavenly scales of justice, that's not a way to live. Here's the way. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. It's very exclusive because there's one way, but it's all inclusive of whosoever will. And if you're here today and you've never said, Jesus, I want to pursue you in a relationship with you, it's a simple start. You just say, Jesus, I choose today to do that. And if you're online, if you would like to choose today to start to follow Jesus, I believe if you're here, if you're listening to my voice, God's chosen you, he's called you. Why else would you be online at 9.30 in the morning? Why else would you be in a room full of people at 9.30, 10 o'clock in the morning? Because Jesus brought you here. And if you've never made that decision, I would just invite you here today just to raise your hand and let us know. If you're online, would you just click on the hand on there that just says you, that says, I want to follow Jesus and somebody can even be on there to talk to you. Or if you want to recommit and come back to Jesus, you've been straying, uh, check one of those hands. Is there anybody here today that would say, you know what, Terry, I, I, I've never made that commitment and today I, I would like to. Anybody here I can pray with? Just raise your hand so that I can catch my eye if you would. Yes, thank you. Yeah, amen. Thank you. Amen. Anybody else? Thank you, friend. You bet. Lord bless you. Yeah, thank you. Anybody else today says, I, I need to make this step. Amen. Thank you, Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray for those people online. I pray for the people here in this room that have courageously and boldly raised their hand and said, I want to do this. It's not in the raising of the hand that does it. It's in the heart that says, I believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, the one who came to forgive my sins by dying on the cross. That is the entrance point, the belief in that. And I pray, Lord, that each of these people here in this room and, Lord, those online today, 
And Lord, just come and embrace them and let them know that they may not have all the answers, but they can find them in you. Strengthen them, be with them, Lord. And I thank you, God, that people are responding to your voice and your will. And in this season ahead, Lord, teach us what it means to walk in relationship, not a religion. So I pray blessing and life over these people today. And Lord, those who raise their hands, let them be assured of their walk with you. And if they have questions, if those of you who have done that have questions, please let us know. And our church would be glad to help you in any way we can. So we love you, Jesus, and give thanks for your life. Amen. Amen. Amen.